0: John, thanks for taking some time to join me on the podcast.
1: Oh, th- thanks for, for having me. It's, it's a pleasure.
0: I know we're communicating across the sea, so um, hopefully there's not too much of a delay, but it's, it's my, my pleasure to host you for the ASA Virtual Investor Summit. Uh, I know you've done some work with the ASA community before. You've appeared on many podcasts. So this uh, discussion hopefully is going to bridge private and public markets, or at least focus on public markets with a private market Lens, I guess, is the way we could probably frame it. And we'll talk about things like uh, maybe special situations or catalyst investing, uh, all different types of things and what you look for at Boyer. Uh, but to get things started, there, are, I've been kind of thinking about this a lot lately, John, which is this idea that of all the different types of stock market investing, value investing seems to be the most logical in that it seems to be intuitive. You would buy something for less than it's worth. Yet a lot of people, Tend to struggle with actually executing on that idea. So I'm curious to to ask you why you think that might be the case, or even if you agree.
1: I, I agree. To me, and, and I guess it's because I grown up with this. And you know, this is a family business. The business was started by my father, Mark, in the in the '70s. So I've my whole life I've been exposed to it, and I just really don't understand any other way to invest. You know. It, To me it just makes sense to try and look for 50 cent dollars that that's just just natural to me but clearly that's not how the rest of the world thinks and that gives us the opportunity and the reason if i had a guess why why that is is people want instant gratification and value investing is not instant gratification you have to go against the grain You have to do things that other people are not willing to do or or look at situations other people are discarding. And it's very hard to be a contrarian. So I think that is, you know, what creates the opportunity and why most people can't do what they want, you know, to to get rich tomorrow. And Mm. unfortunately, this is a um, business where, you know, it takes patience. Mm.
0: Yeah. I, uh, I, I love that line by Charlie Munger, which is instead of get rich quick, just take away the quick and just focus on the get rich part. And it kind of <laughs> augments us to take away that the impulsive uh, side of some of the things that we do with money. Uh, I, I, I also am recalling reading on your website, um, the Boyer Valley Group, I believe is the, the website where people can head to find out about what you do. Um, but I, I was reading on there when I was looking at the performance page of how the subscription services had performed, it was really interesting how you broke down the the performance, not only by years, but like uh, batting average, so to speak, and uh, the, the percentage outperformance of certain ideas that you've come across over the years. But one of the things that really stood out to me is that the five-year time horizon seems to be when there's the most outperformance. Um, of the picks, and I thought that was really curious because that is actually your stated aim, of course. But a lot of people, like you say, they don't have the patience to go that distance, I guess.
1: It, it's yeah, no, that's what it really is. It, I don't think value investing is you know hard. It's I think anyone who's you know relatively intelligent can can do this. It, you don't need to be a rocket scientist to 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 be a good value. But I think it's really the temperament and the patience willing to wait and, you know, not swing at every pitch. And it's easy to say that, but it's really much harder to, to execute.
0: Mm. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the the firm and the business? Um, I, we were just chatting off air, and I, I know this from people that have remarked about you that a lot of other professional investors subscribe to the research from Boyer. Um, but now there's obviously a Substack offering where basically, as far as I'm aware, anyone can join and access some of the research as well. But can you tell us a bit of the background? Like how did it come to be? Um, what was it in the early days versus now?
1: Sure, it, it started in the 70s. My my dad went off on his own after after working for some, some brokerage houses. And he wanted to start a research service that was predicated on intrinsic value. What is a business worth to an acquirer? So he went out on his own and and he started this publication called Asset Analysis Focus, and slowly but surely he he built it into, you know, a good size business. We were were never big promoters, we're never big marketers, just kind of grew generally via word of mouth and, you know, in, in the beginning, in the 70s, we were more deep value investors, which is, you know, look for lower quality businesses that were just statistically cheap. And yes, you know, uh, and that was how you made a lot of money in the 70s and 80s, mm. and over time, we've we've evolved and more have a quality bias these deep value situations just, just don't generally work anymore I mean, with, with some exceptions. But we still publish research, our, our audiences, you know, institutions, hedge funds, mutual funds, family offices, but what we're really excited about is a couple of, you know, a couple of months ago, we launched a, a Substack page to provide the same insights that we're giving our institutional subscribers, but more for a retail uh, or financial advisor audience. It's, it's, it's obviously a lower price point to get different things. But you know, to make our work more accessible, it, it's it's really been a lot of fun. And if you just put all your research into Substack, you'll you'll find us. And mm. you know, we sell, we have a lot of free articles that, that you know mm. just about investing. And then we you know give people one idea a month, uh, as well as that's kind of the premium subscription. Mm. But the, you know, so we have the research side of the house, and then we also manage money. Um, for you know, we, we started that in, in 1983, utilizing the same type of research that we provide to our institutional subscribers. We, we set up separately managed accounts or, you know, that, that sort of thing. And it's, you know, it's a very complimentary business and and it's a Mm. lot of fun.
0: Mm, For sure. Um, I'm curious because you said something there about some of the things that may not work necessarily as well as they did in the early days of the seventies or eighties. When you said statistically cheap, what, were the types of things that Boyer was set up to do in those early days? Like what were the types of opportunities just to give people, I guess, a a sense or context around what you meant by statistically cheap?
1: Well, there were, there were businesses that were selling for less than, you know, the assets on its, on their, on their balance sheet, uh, that they, that, you know, you were, they they were just unbelievably cheap businesses, but because you didn't have the information flow out there. You know, the mm. biggest technical advantage you had in, in the 70s was having a calculator so sure. if you were willing to literally like do the arithmetic you you, you could make <laughs> you, you can make you can make money and obviously with computers etc that type of thing has, has been you know taken away and you have to be you know a little bit more thoughtful and, and to, to find find ideas but you know the classic example my my dad and i've heard the story a million times since i was a kid is is tiffany and company which was one of the first companies we ever profiled in our research service in 1975 you could have bought the whole company for 24 million dollars that's the whole thing wow and the uh, building it owned on uh, 57th street and fifth avenue was worth more than the entire market cap of the company so you're getting the actual business for free for zero cost for less than zero cost um you're getting paid to own the tiffany brand the tiffany diamond and, and, and all sorts of stuff and yeah you know, that was our really first big success and you know a couple of years after we, we profiled it uh, it was taken over actually by uh, i believe avon uh, and mm. that was our first real big win but those believe it or not those type of things happened in, in 2009 Sachs Fifth Avenue was selling for less than the real estate it owned on Fifth Avenue too. So it's you just have to be there and willing to um, step into situation that other people, you know, are afraid to are afraid to try.
0: I was actually going to ask you about this later on, but I might ask you now. Um, you talk about in the Boyer research a lot of like things like catalysts and um, I guess hidden value is one of the things that you look for as well. Can you maybe just take a moment just to talk about that because i was I was actually reading the Tiffany's case study that you just mentioned on the Boyer website uh, this morning before we hit record. and i was I was really interested to know if it was a bit of a chicken and egg scenario if the the hidden value of Tiffany's kind of gave rise to this idea that we can go and look for these types of businesses, or indeed if your father was already looking for those types of businesses, um, and that's what uh, led to kind of this, I guess this framework through time. Um, but maybe just to just to set the scene for people that aren't familiar with that, can you just tell us a little bit about maybe that idea of hidden value and how it comes to be?
1: Yeah. The reason why I like it, like the hidden, you know, the hidden it's called the hidden asset method, or we call it the hidden asset method.
0: Okay. And one of the reasons
1: I like it so much is you never want to say never with AI, etc., but it's one of those things that I think would be unbelievably difficult to screen for almost by by definition. Mm-hmm. How do you figure out that you have you know, a building that's, you know, undervalued uh, on its balance sheet, you know, because a gap accounting and it, it seems like it'd be difficult. So it really is a curiosity. It's a, it's a mindset. I mean, he came, he wasn't looking for hidden assets per se, but it's being curious every day on the way to work, he would, well, he'd pass by 57th Street and, and Fifth Avenue and he kind of wondered, he knew it was a public you know, he he knew it was a publicly traded stock. You know, one day, I guess he asked himself, do they own the building? And in, in those days it was a lot harder to get information. So you probably had to go to, you know, get, go down to city hall or or however you, you found that, that information then. Um, And it's just being curious and it's, it's, you know, be willing to, you know, know, to, to look at every situation and you're going to, I don't want to say waste a lot of time but most of the time you're not going to come up with any ideas but it's it's knowing mm-hmm. when you found that that good idea and, and running with it is, is is what's important
0: this idea of the hidden asset method is what you said i think um is really interesting to me because like you said that whole that the shift towards ai and statistical uh, type modeling based on machine learning um is is like something that scares a lot of investors. They think, "Well, is stock picking dead? Is these types of things are these types of things dead?" Um, but the ability to identify weaknesses in financial reporting standards, and there aren't many indeed, um, and to use that to your advantage, I think, is a an edge that's still relevant today as it was then. Um, and I, I was I was cu- I was really interested in that story because I, I was remembering back to my CFA textbook days when. Um, you would look and you would try and juxtapose IFRS with US GAAP accounting or generally accepted accounting principles. And some of the differences between the two were very stark. And indeed, one of those is property, right, in the way property is valued on the balance sheet and these types of things. Um, so I thought that was a really interesting one. Could you maybe, um, if, you, if you're willing, maybe spare a couple of moments now to talk about some of the other methods that you might use to, un, to, to identify um, companies or stocks for either the research or the asset management side?
1: Yeah, well, it's the same for, for both. I mean, we, we eat our own cooking. You know, 99% of our portfolio has you know, been vetted by our research service, and I think that's what gives us our, our edge. But we, you know, there's a variety of different methods, and we're, you know, we're value investors, if you had to put the word value or growth, although I really dislike the term value investing. Um, I'd say, if anything, we're, we're opportunists. And, you know, f- you know for mm. example, one of our names that we profiled and own is, is Uber, and that's not a quote-unquote value stock, but it has mm. a, a network effect and a huge competitive advantage that I think, you know, sets itself apart. But, you know, going back to the different methods, we love great consumer franchises, for example, you, because they, they give you pricing power. Uh, they're able to raise, especially in an inflationary environment, that's, that's important. But we especially love great consumer franchises that are masked by a corporate name. And a historical I- example of that was, you know, company Stokely Van Camp, another early name that we profiled. Um, you know, people would have thought of it as a baked beans business, but they they actually owned Gatorade, which was worth more than the entire market cap of the company. And that was something we were excited about. And, you know, business just because of its name, wasn't given its due. It sounds silly, but it actually works. Mm. Uh, a recent example of that was a company, Akushnet, which is a really dumb name for, for business. Uh, it, it owns Titleist golf balls and foot joy golf gloves. And, you know, I did an informal poll of investors when I was pitching it on a, on a road show. I'd say ninety percent of them never even heard of the company, Uh, and it has great brands. So it's these are the kind of things that you actually can find value. It it sounds silly, but it really, really works. Mm -hmm. Um, We also like out of favor looking at out of favor industries. You know, that's something that's um, you know, and finding you know, kind of the baby without the the baby that's been thrown out with the bathwater. That that's one. Uh, way that we look at companies you can find a lot of value there but you have to be careful of value traps mm. uh, and make sure you're not buying a buggy whip type of business um same can, with, I,
0: can i yeah. jump in there john um one of the things that i read there because on your website is that obviously catalysts are really important to that and that's one way that you kind of sift through that would that be fair to say when you're looking at those kind yeah. of beaten up type of companies
1: yeah, you no, know, absolutely. You have to look, you know, what's going to make a stock ascend in value. And if, if you look at the catalyst for it and you and try and find a reason why the market is eventually going to see what you're seeing, it helps you. It doesn't completely insulate you from value traps, but it, it certainly certainly helps. Mm. Uh,
0: and mm. that's the same
1: thing with fallen angels, which is, which is similar. You know, the, the once darlings of wall street that are unwanted, unloved, um, you know, you know those. you actually, have, you have to be very careful and make sure that these businesses have a, um, you know, have good growth prospects going forward. But just as the way Wall Street will put a company to the moon in terms of getting super excited about it and price things for perfection, they can get unbelievably pessimistic and make things ridiculously cheap. And you know that's when we try and. Um, and find those opportunities as well. Mm. So, and then we look at you know asset plays, companies that you know own great assets. You know, maybe the business isn't necessarily statistically cheap, but if you look at it the way an acquirer would and they own this really valuable asset that's not utilized in the day to day operations of the business or, or if it can be sold, is you know something we like. And we also look at spin outs, uh, that's you know something that we're um. Mm. The, the, Know, we, we find a lot
0: of value in that. It's interesting because uh, some of the companies that you sent through to me via email in the lead up to this, um, I was actually looking and I can't remember if it was Master Brand or even if it was G, I think it was Master Brand. I went into Barron's yeah. and I saw that only one analyst had a published research, according to Barron's anyway, on the company. And I thought that was really interesting because that's kind of what you're looking for is those types of. Businesses, because as far as I'm aware, it's. You, although, although I'm sure you look at them, like you, you, you find a lot of value in that that small to mid-cap range uh, of companies, like in that kind of like outside the, the fang stocks and those types of things that get so much of the the media and the analyst attention. You're looking in that range, and I, I, I thought that was really interesting because, if anyone that's playing along and don't don't understand what we mean by this, typically fewer analysts covering a company equals better because um, there's more opportunity for valuations to be mismatched with, uh, with pricing and that's where you get those securities. So I was, I was curious and maybe you can, maybe you can lend an example there. Like I can't remember if it was master brand or GE or one of those, but the spin-off idea or like those smaller mid cap, the asymmetry and in information, how you think about that?
1: Yeah, no, I mean that's master brand. You're hundred percent correct. It's one, I believe it's either one or two analysts cover it and that, that leads to opportunities or the other one that I sent you, GE Healthcare, which was the spin out of GE, when we initially profiled it, not not in the presentation I sent you, but right after it was spun out, only one or two analysts were, were, were covering it uh, because you were going you know, from someone who was covering GE proper to someone who is like a transitioning to a to different type of analyst who's going to cover a healthcare type of stuff. No. So you, you, you find these things where you can really add value. You. you to me, it's yeah. I, I remember this distinctly. One of the first, you know, when I, I think I was working for for Gabelli, I was using my, friend who's a fantastic investor, Mary Gabelli, mm. and he, they sent us to a conference. And yeah, I think I heard Boeing speak, or it was one of these very large cap names, mm. and I'm, there was eighty analysts in the room on the buy side, or ninety. I'm thinking, wow. how can you have any edge on something like that? What am I going to really know what these ninety other presumably really smart men and women know? So you, you can really have that edge on the small and mid cap name, which is, which is where I see the greatest opportunity.
0: Mm. Um, and indeed, like some of those some of those names, I, I'd never heard. I mean, maybe it's because I'm based here in Australia, but I'd never heard of Master Brand. I, I, I've heard of Master Foods, so I'd assume that uh, Master Master Brand would own Master Foods, but it's not that at all. So maybe uh, this is a good segue to that. Can you just tell us a little bit about the business?
1: Yeah, well, Master Brands—it's a kitchen cabinet business. So um, you might you might have heard of some of their brands of of cabinetry, but it's it's one of those things—a great consumer franchise masked by a corporate name—you mm-hmm. know—leads to to asymmetry, or you know. Another the other company in that presentation, which I'm sure based on where you are in the world, have, know quite well is News Corp. Mm. Uh, and you know they have great consumer franchises underneath that of you know obviously Dow Jones and Barons, which you which you just mentioned, and then they also own REA, which is not as well known to people in the United States, but obviously in your country is is quite a Absolutely. Uh, big deal.
0: Yeah. Um, so and that was the perfect example, I thought, News Corp of the way, the style that, and the way you approach your investing because News Corp is also in a transition period, right? It's got mm-hmm. those brands underneath, um, and a lot of American um, analysts might not be familiar with how dominant REA Group is in Australia. Like it is, it is like the monster that eats the the whole property market here in Australia. Oh, so, <laughs> so, so that's it. I think that other that was a perfect example.
1: Yeah, no, it, it fits a lot of things. It's it's run by someone who is generally not viewed favorably on Wall Street, but over time has created a lot of value for shareholders. Obviously, when you have a career as long as Rupert Murdoch, you're going to make mistakes, and that's just you know Buffett makes mm-hmm. mistakes too. I'm not comparing the two, but like you know, that's yeah. uh, but he's yeah, but I think he's 92, 93 years old. He's not getting any younger. He just steps off of being the executive chair. Um, They have unbelievable assets and it would make sense for the company to be broken up. The sum of the parts are worth a lot more than what the company is currently traded for in the market. Mm.
0: Um, If I may go back, just retreat to something that you said before, you mentioned Uber and Mm -hmm. obviously many of our everyone listening to this or watching this will be familiar with Uber. In fact, just last night I'm here in Sydney and I ordered Uber Eats because I wasn't uh, necessarily happy with the hotel's room service last time. So um, many people will be familiar with it, but many people may also be familiar with the business perspective, which is that, you know, in the past it was kind of, Marred by some unusual management, and it wasn't always profitable, even though it probably should have been. So maybe can you talk about like what you saw there to, to start covering that business?
1: Yeah, you no, know, we that's exactly what we saw. We saw that, that people. The narrative was it was still run by Travis, uh, and they had real adult supervision in place. Hmm. Uh, Dara, uh, I can never pronounce his last name. Dara. Yeah. Uh, ran the yeah you know, was running it. He has a really good track record at Expedia, and before that was at, at I- IAC, working under Barry Diller. And what we saw was a company that was dominant in its in its market. Um, it's I mean it's, it it really defined the category, especially in the U.S. It was it was divesting for equity stakes their international presence, so it was becoming a in some of these far-flung locations that they weren't number one or number two at. And um, we, it was kind of a capital light type of, of business with, with with a ton of scale. So it tossed it, it checked off a lot of boxes. I mean, there's certainly, you know, regulatory uncertainty and things that could go wrong, but this is, uh, you know, has a really large network and. It is a company that should do quite well over time you, again you have to be patient it's a volatile stock but we we, we see plenty of opportunity from here
0: mm. i love that you started with like a the narrative of it's not a very good narrative whereas a lot of newer investors or investors who are indeed aren't contrarian in any way they go for the opposite and i i would find that you know there are good and bad in both approaches and easy ways to go wrong but uh, when you see something around you, you just look around and you see everywhere, you look Uber. Um, I feel like that's a that's a starting point that m- most people shouldn't neglect when they see those brands around them. One thing that uh, I've heard you say a couple of times is this idea of we take a private market approach to public markets. Can you explain what that means?
1: Sure. We're looking at every company, and valuing it through the lens of an acquirer, you know, Not what is one share worth, but what is the entire business worth? So, if you're able to buy it at a significant buy a share of stock at a significant discount to what the entire business is worth, uh, then that gets interesting, and that's one part of the equation. But it also has to have that catalyst, which is what we discussed earlier. It also has to have that. So, it's taking that kind of approach. One of the benefits of of it is oftentimes our our companies that we profile end up getting taken over because a private equity firm or a strategic acquirer you know another business in that area um sees what we see and tries to take advantage of the situation so you know it it could have great rewards um Mm. but again these things don't happen overnight
0: Mm. um there was another. You, you mentioned golf before, which is it's not really uh, my domain. I, I love being on the golf course, but I don't do it enough, and nor am I very good at it. Um, but I did hear you talk about. And I can't. Maybe it was with Tobias Carlisle on Value After Hours. You talked a little bit about uh, Callaway and Top Golf, um, and most of most Aussies would be familiar with the the brand Callaway, but probably not Top Golf. Can you explain? Um, the business case here, and then, then the investment case as
1: well. Sure. So the company is Top Golf Callaway Brands. The symbol is MODG for for Modern Golf. Right. So there's really three parts of the business, two of which are are related. So you have the traditional Callaway business, which is golf balls, golf clubs, that that sort of things you know irons and you know, big bertha mm. that, that, that's one part of the business another part of the business is top golf which is it ha- i think they actually have one in australia i could be mm. wrong uh, but it's a nightclub meets a bowling alley meets a driving range it's just <laughs> a venue that you go to you have a lot of fun you know over 50 percent of their uh, revenue comes from food and food and drink and they're, they're big venues that cost anywhere between 10 or 20 million dollars to 50 million dollars to build and wow. you these games against your friends they're utilizing their proprietary top tracer technology uh, and it's just a lot of fun they have and, and they're quite profitable they're you know fifty percent 60 percent cash on cash returns for um, hmm. uh, Investing in the investing in the business, uh, so they're right now they have about eighty some odd. They think they can get to two hundred and fifty in the U.S., another two hundred and fifty internationally, and it's going to be this year more than fifty percent of their EBITDA. So they've changed the name of the company from Callaway to Top Golf Callaway Brands. They the opportunistically bought the eighty five percent of Top Golf that they didn't own during the. 2020 coronavirus, you know, the pandemic Mm. there was, they ran into some issues and they were able to to buy it. So it's a really, it's a growth stock at a value price, which is what we, which we like. And then it also owns Jack Wolfskin and Travis Matthews, some pretty good apparel brands as well. So it's, it's an interesting situation. Um, They probably five or six sell side analysts cover it. So yeah, it's not. Except for Jeffries, a lot of the big banks don't cover it. But it's it's a, it's it's one that we like. Yeah, I happen to have Chip Ruhr on my podcast, which was, which mm. was a lot of fun. He's the CEO of of Top Golf, but it's, it's one that's definitely worth checking out.
0: Mm. If I'm not mistaken, the podcast is called uh, Is It the World According to Boyer? Is that correct?
1: Yeah, the World According to Boyer, and you know I. I do podcasts just kind of for fun. You know, we don't do advertising or anything like that on it. It's just I, I, I've been fortunate to get some cool guests mm. and just talk to them about their, you know, their philosophy, how they create value, uh, you know, how they run businesses, and it's I've learned a lot.
0: gonna okay, I'd like to double click on the, the the business, the Callaway uh, Top Golf brands business. How does your team go about valuing something that, like that? Like my previous question was about private market approach to public markets. Yeah. How do you think about taking that private market framework and applying it to something like Callaway?
1: Well, you do a, in that case, because there's three different businesses, we just do a sum of the parts valuation. You figure out you know, what kind of multiple um, do you want to put on Top Golf. Mm-hmm. What kind of multiple do you want to put on the traditional golf business? And that's part is easy to do because there are, have been a lot of transactions in, in the golf space in the recent past. Uh, so you can see what have other smart informed businesses, a business pert people paid for the paid for businesses that are like it. So you can figure that out and then you figure out what, uh, type of multiple you want to put on an apparel business. So -hmm. it's, and then you, you add them, you add them all up. So Mm. it's not, Mm. it's not difficult. You just have to figure out, you know, what, what each business is, uh, part of business is worth and, and see if, if it's significantly less than all of them together.
0: Mm. Um, so you, you mentioned management there before, like having them on your podcast and these types of things. In in these type of situations, how I know this is more like a general kind of, a bit more of a fluffy question for you, John, but how much emphasis do you place on management um, when you look at these types of situations rather than say, so you know the old cliche there's there's a business that anyone can run um, where you get those types of businesses where it's the mature business, maybe it's really entrenched. But I feel like in these types of situations, you're making a big bet on someone to execute Three different businesses under you know one big banner. Like, how do you think about that?
1: Yeah, it, it's it's difficult. If sometimes you get the best opportunities. You know, in order for there to be value and there mispricing, something has to give. Mm. You know, sometimes you have a great business that's being run, and this is not the case with Callaway, the top but a great business that is being run by a terrible operator, and that's to me an op- opportunity. Because you can just potentially get rid of the bad operator and then (laughs) it fixes that problem. So you're never going to have all all the parts of the equation there. But for for example, one of the names that we're involved in or multiple names is is the Madison Square Garden companies. There's multiple of them. There's Madison Square Garden Sports, um, which owns Mm. the the Rangers. So it's a publicly traded sports team. There's Madison Square Garden Entertainment which owns the Madison Square Garden and the Beacon Theater. And then there's the the Sphere, uh, which is this new thing that they have in Las Vegas, uh, that is a a new concept of entertainment buildings uh, centers. And it's controlled by uh, Jim Dolan or James Dolan. And people on Wall Street hate him. But we look at things and also the. Fans of the Knicks and the Rangers also dislike NBC. I think they have a good job on the team, but we look at things differently. We look at his long-term track record. He's actually created a lot of value for shareholders, and the Dolan discount has given us an opportunity to, you know, buy into great businesses at you know very very good prices.
0: Mm -hmm. I remember hearing you talk about this on a podcast. I can't remember which one it was. Um where if I'm not mistaken, so for, for the Australians, you're probably thinking like what's the dollar discount? If I'm not mm-hmm. mistaken at Madison Square Garden, there was like facial recognition that was set up and it would block certain people from coming in or something like this.
1: Yeah, so he's not well liked in New York and he partially it's self-inflicted wounds. Uh, <laughs> you know, he, he did one thing where people were suing him and he decided he didn't obviously like that and he made a, a rule that you couldn't enter madison square garden which is you know the biggest or, or more, you know the, it's literally the world's most famous arena or you yeah to build themselves at if you work for a company that is suing a law firm that is suing um the uh, madison square Garden. so he literally i guess he the web and took all pictures of people who worked at the law firm, everyone has like their, mm. all the lawyers have a, a picture on their, in their bio, and he's, he installed technology where if they enter Madison Square Garden, they were kicked out, uh, even if they had nothing to do with the lawsuit, even if they're working in a totally different you know, area of the law. And it it got to be so extreme that they they also own uh, Radio City Music Hall where the Rockettes are. uh, It's another great asset. Uh, And over Christmas this year, there was a a Girl Scout troop, Uh, a mom, took a bunch of little girls to see the Rockettes, and she happened to work at one of those law firms. And she was thrown out of the building, you know, in front of her children like so uh in of, so he so it's like you can't buy worse publicity um i mean just not a you know he's a, obviously in, in, in some ways can be quite vindictive but the way we look at it is he owns great assets mean, if, if the knicks or the rangers ever went up for sale they would go for a heck of a lot more money than what the enterprise value of the company mm-hmm. currently is and you know we're you know, we're willing to invest alongside of him because he's proven with his other companies he used to run a company called Cablevision where all these other companies originated from that he sold to Altice in 2015 2016 for a heck of a lot of money and shareholders were richly rewarded so you know we, we you know we're we're contrarians
0: mm. it's it's really interesting that when i hear that and we maybe remember back to the, the story about News Corp and Rupert Murdoch. How, and and this goes to maybe the story that you had at the top of the show about patience and that idea of people remaining patient. I guess the question is like in, in, in value investing, it's hard to know if you're wrong or early, you know. How do you know that you're, how do you ready yourself and prepare yourself to invest in something that's say run by Jim Dolan and is on the premise that it could be broken up or part sold, like the Knicks could be sold or something like that. How do you weigh up that? I guess the the time horizon element.
1: Well, it's inter- it's an interesting question, and I'll do my best to answer it. You know, with the Madison Square Garden, you know, it has been public in one form or the other since to roughly 2011, and since that time the value of the Knicks and the Rangers were were significantly more than the market uh, market cap of the company. Mm -hmm. And you could have said, oh, you should sell the team, unlock shareholder value. But if you look at the growth rate of what these sports franchises have grown at, the best decision for shareholders has been to keep them they've compounded tax-free over the past 12, 13 years at a higher rate of return than you can pretty much get anywhere else you know, on a reasonable basis. So you, know, you just have to look at what you're buying. You have to see, is this a business that I'm willing to own for a very long period of time? You don't want to own mediocre businesses at good prices. That's just not, just mediocre businesses can go away but there's really only one Knicks. There's really mm. only one Rangers. I mean, it might be difficult being in Australia just to understand you know, how valuable those teams are. But if you look at the value of, of, of what these transactions have been for teams outside of New York, like the Phoenix Suns going for $4 billion, mm. does that imply a team that is from New York is worth? Like it's it's... Mm. You know, multiples
0: higher. Mm. I remember going to a Knicks game at um, Madison Square Garden and um, I was the the fans super passionate um, and the whole community around it is uh, incredible. So I can definitely appreciate that. And um, yeah, you're right about the suddens that it kind, of, it kind of like you said before, it speaks to that kind of that private market. Like what is actually happening in the industry, what are the multiples, how are these things priced? Because that is the economic reality. Like a lot of the stuff that we see in public markets is an economic reality. It's just what's designed in academia is like a valuation mm-hmm. approach. And this is the principle that we follow. But in any case, yeah, I, I just think those are wonderful examples and they demonstrate the way you and the team think at large about markets and finding, as you say, like opportunistic value maybe, is a way to frame that. Um, I was curious, there was a question which I kind of skipped over, which I wanted to cover just quickly as we come to the end here, which was, obviously your father um, established the firm and now you're leading it. Um, I'm curious how or what he did to instill certain principles upon you when it comes to business or investing. Is there anything that you can share with us that helped you personally uh, develop as an investor or as a manager, as a leader in your business?
1: Well, took, the biggest thing he taught, being around this your whole life, you just pick up tidbits and, you know, mm. he, he put me into meetings very early on where I was just a fly on the wall and I, 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 I learned a lot, but the biggest thing he taught me was was patience, uh, which is a difficult thing to, to teach and, and that doing nothing is an action uh, which is also something that's that, that, that's that's quite difficult to do. So I, I, it's been a pleasure working with him and, and learning from him, and I, I've I've learned a lot. You know, the the technical part of of value investing you can learn by reading a book. You, you read Security Analysis, or you read the Intelligent Investor, or, or whatnot, and you, you can find out the techniques and soon with AI you probably won't even need that but the um, yeah it, it's more of the the, the the stuff that they wouldn't necessarily teach you in in business school um, mm. and you know it's it's difficult and you know it's it certainly it's been a tough period for this style of investing but because I've
0: been around it for so long that I know that
1: it works, I don't give up on it uh, because to me, it's the only thing that really makes sense.
0: Mm, mm. And, and, and we've seen that the world over, right? Like the proliferation of falling interest rates, uh, increasing information flow, um, many different factors making it more challenging for the, the deep value, which you said is like kind of shifted a bit. And then there's like the quality framework of value and opportunistic uh, investing and it's interesting to see that mold through time and indeed it's, it's happened with your business as well um i've got two more questions here at the end uh but just quickly it was boyer value group the the website that people can go to if i'm not mistaken and yeah. yep sorry yeah it's boyer
1: value group or boyerresearch.com or just go to substack and, and boyer research and you can find, right. out, find us
0: Great. I'll put a link in the show notes for anyone watching or listening to this after the fact. Um, The other two questions that I've had um, relates to what uh, we are just talking about, which is some lessons that you would have um, for teaching, say, the next generation or even people around you about investing or business. How how do you go about that personally? How do you think about that challenge?
1: I think he's the biggest thing is i and we were talking this offline is people make things a lot more complicated than they they need to be and one of the things about you know starting the substack that i like is because it's more for a a re, you know a non professional investor you, know, you, you have to be very careful with using jargon and technical language and just explain it to someone who doesn't have a business background and Really shouldn't be investing in a business unless you can explain it in that sort of, of way. Mm. So I don't, I don't know if that you know. Yeah, it does answers your question, and also the, the value of of reading. I mean, it's it's just read anything you can get your hands on and, and be curious and just think of as much as you can in that business perspective because you never know when you're going to be walking by that Tiffany company on Fifty Seventh Street and Fifth Avenue um and you know ask those type of questions that's it's got to be curious
0: Mm, i love that because that is in effect what investing is all about right like it's about identifying those businesses and keeping an open mind and like like you said earlier it's almost some of these things are easier said than done but at the same time you have to you know, the brain is very literal. You want to expose yourself to those ideas um, so that you can recognize them when they come up. I've got one final thing. You mentioned reading there, so perhaps that's your answer to this question. But my final question is, if you could go back in time and tell your, your younger self something, um, whether it's about life, whether it's about business, whether it's about investing, however you want to take this question, it's up to you. But if you could tell yourself one thing, what would it be? By
1: Amazon and Apple. Um, it's really just learn as much as you can about as many different topics and don't you know don't don't be dismissive of 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 anything and realize that you don't have to have rigid orthodoxy uh, Mm. for for investing you find a way that works for you and that's comfortable for you and and uh, know as much as you humanly can. And I guess the one thing, I guess if I could do it again, um, would be, and I'd recommend for young people, is to work in an actual operating company first. That, I think, um, gives gives people an advantage. I would say that would be an important thing to do. Mm.
0: Yeah, I, I hardly agree with that, to actually understand. The realities of business and the, the softer challenges that aren't represented on a spreadsheet right it's so important um, but I also think that's a wonderful piece of advice to anyone listening is um, don't be dismissive of ideas because um, it's so easy for us to become parochial and like, kind of like tribal in investing isn't it and um, I'm a growth investor I'm a value investor I'm a technical analyst I'm a value inv- like it just goes on and on and on identifying ourselves that way seems silly to me so uh, I appreciate that that piece of wisdom. Yeah.
1: Yeah, you should identify. You, you, we're all trying to make a return either for ourselves or for our clients. And how you do it is, you know, there's many different ways that clearly work. You just have to find one that that fits with your personality. And you know, some people just are not meant to be buy and hold investors, and and you can't teach yourself that. But there, there are other. You can make money. Trading,
0: I think it's as much harder. Mm, mm. Well, this has been um, a lot of fun, John. Thank you for taking some time out of your day uh, to share some of your wisdom. I know there's a lot more that's available in Substack or even on the websites and the podcast for people that want to pursue it further. I know a lot of people in the ASA community do follow your work, and I know a lot of professional investors that follow your work as well. So. I do sincerely appreciate you taking the time to chat with us um, from across the ocean. So um, enjoy the rest of your day. And uh, thanks once again.
1: Thank you for having me.